It is good to be with you all this morning. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 72. That's Psalm 72. We've been working through a series praying the Psalms, looking at the second book of the Psalms. And Psalm 72 is the last book of the second book of Psalms. And as you turn there, I want to tell you a story about me, about kings and queens. You see, they've always fascinated me. See, they fascinate all of us. Look no further than the popularity of Netflix's The Crown, a host of other TV shows get at this idea of kings and queens and monarchies and ruling. I grew up wanting to be a king, Lord Gallagher. Sounds pretty great. I loved the story of King Arthur. The the Sword in the Stone, um, the old cartoon on Disney, remains one of my favorite movies to this day. So much so as a child that I loved the idea of being a king that I convinced my dad for my seventh birthday to build a fort in our backyard. This thing was 20 some odd feet high. We had a fence in our backyard, so I had kind of this wall around my little castle. It was two stories. There was a prison and a dungeon kind of that I'd set up on the the ground level. And there was this giant platform at the top. I could see the whole neighborhood from the top of my fort. And everything that was within the fence was kind of my kingdom. And then you had like the stuff outside the fence, the neighborhood that was... Areas that I had not yet conquered. But I was not a good king. The mop that I had as a scepter was was not really working that great. And the gallon ice cream bucket that I used as a crown was, was pretty poor as well. I did a meager job of expanding my dominion and was not kind to the citizens of my kingdom. I think I waited several months before I let anyone else other than me go up to the top of my fort, including my little brother. Like, he could not go up there. This was my castle, my kingdom, and my rule. My kingdom was characterized by selfishness, retribution, and greed. I wasn't a good king partly because I was seven. And partly because I ruled in a way that was out of step with the way that God himself rules today. Today's text, Psalm 72, is a royal psalm, a coronation hymn that marks the transition of kingship from David to Solomon. So while the text is looking forward, announcing the reign of Israel's next king, the text also hearkens us back to recall this specific people's past. That this king is to be a blessing to the nations recalls the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. The tie to Abraham is a reminder for us in the text today that all of Israel is to act in the ways of the prayer of this hymn. Furthermore, by placing this psalm last in the second book of the Psalter, the author extends the chorus forward, past the rule of David, to characterize the reign of every ruler that that follows him. The vision of a goodly ruler in Psalm 72 is an idealized vision of kingship 
The hopeful course of the court of David ushering in the reign of Solomon is in reality just that. It's hope-filled. This psalm then is also eschatological. It both announces the reign of Israel's next king and awaits a king that will reign in perfect justice and righteousness. The hope of the text that we'll see today is fulfilled in the messianic vision of God's kingdom come. The longing of the nations answered at last in Christ who becomes understood as the king of Psalm 72. Finally, this hymn becomes a prayer for the church, for you and for me. Because the church is to be a sign of God's reign in the world. Because the text speaks of how leaders are to act in God's kingdom, this psalm forges a link from David past Solomon's reign, past the subsequent rulers of Israel, to Christ and to his heirs, to you and to me. We'll see today that David authored Psalm 72, that we would long for just kings and righteous kingdoms, knowing that our hearts will persist in restless yearning until they find peace in the goodly rule of God. We are meant to realize through today's text that Christ is the only righteous ruler, his kingdom, the only one that's just. And so we will see today that the text is structured like a road map leading us to our destination, peace in the goodly and forever rule of God. First, we'll see in verses 1 to 11 how we're meant to petition God longingly for just kings and righteous kingdoms. We'll see from the text that this prayer is driven by our hope in God himself, that his justice and righteousness would break into earthly realms, that his grace and peace would be extended throughout the earth. Second, in verses 12 to 19, we're meant to see that no earthly ruler can achieve the idyllic vision of kingship that's portrayed in the text. We are indeed awaiting the final and forever reign of King Jesus. We'll see in this part of the text that our dissatisfaction with earthly rulers and kingdoms reveals the balm to our longings, Christ himself. So as we begin, let's ask God for help. Let's pray. God, I just confess that I am weaker than I know I am. I need you more than I think that I do. So God, I just pray that you would come in power and that you would speak a word to us from the scriptures that is better than anything I have written on these pages. That God, your spirit would do the work that only you can do. 
that you would raise up the cast down, that you would bring near the far off, that you would make alive the heart that is dead, that you would bring about reconciliation where there is conflict. God, you would bring peace in times of tumult. And God, we we ask for the faith to trust you with this work, knowing that even as we ask, you are already at work doing it. You are faithful to do it because you have not left us alone in this world. No, you are working here and throughout the cosmos to give yourself glory. So God, I pray that you would grant us faith to marvel at your glory today. That we would see you from the text and worship. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So look with me at the text, starting in verse 1. Prayer for an earthly king. David writes, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. The plea of the psalmist is simple but weighty, asking God to grant justice and righteousness to the king. Everything that follows in the text is dependent on these two petitions. If this is the vision of God's kingdom, then it is God's own justice and righteousness that form the core values of that kingdom. We see established at the outset of the text that a key aim of any ruler, any government, is justice. Not only is that clear in this prayer, in this hymn of coronation, but this reality is demonstrated throughout the scriptures, as we'll see as we walk through the sermon today. In 1 Kings 3.28, we see that the prayer of verse 1 in the text today is at least partially fulfilled during Solomon's reign. 1 Kings 3 reads, Israel stood in awe of the king, that's Solomon, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Jonathan Lehman uses this passage in 1 Kings 3 to work out a definition of justice. He says justice is judgment in accordance with what is right. Justice, then, is something primarily that you and I do. And it always has two things in view. First, it always has the law in view. Since the law distinguishes between what is right and what is wrong. And second, it always has God in view because he alone is the perfectly just and righteous lawgiver. Justice and righteousness then are not just items in a list. No, they are the foundation on which all of the other imaginations of the text rest. Visions of peace, economic prosperity, Respect and renown hang on the justice and righteousness of this king. Again, any good that this future king may accomplish will only come to fruition to the degree 
that the reign of the king is characterized by God's own justice and righteousness. Look back at the text starting in verse 2. The psalmist writes, May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. And so this prayerful hymn continues in hope for a reign marked by righteous justice. This hopeful chorus turns from the foundation of the rule of the goodly king to the specific functions of a just and righteous king. What does it mean in the text for this king to do justice that accords with God's own justice and righteousness? If we look through the canon, through the scriptures at who justice is accomplished for, we gain valuable insight. As we explore God's acts of justice, there are certain groups of people that God consistently acts for. Namely, those who are cast down and those who are far off. This means that any vision of biblical justice has in focus those who are materially marginalized and spiritually destitute. This means that any vision of biblical justice has in focus two groups of people. Those who are materially marginalized and spiritually destitute. Over and over, God's righteous justice is described as taking up the cause and care of widows and orphans and the poor. That is, those who are materially marginalized and also taking up care and cause of those outside of Israel, that is, those who are spiritually destitute. For example, look with me in Zechariah 7, starting in verse 9. The author writes, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. The justness of a society, according to the scriptures, is evaluated by how it treats these groups of people. Any neglect shown to the needs of the members of this quartet is not called merely a lack of mercy or charity, but is in fact a violation of God's own justice. Our concern for justice flows from the character of God. So our petition to him for righteous justice, to characterize the reign of our governments or our rulers, flows from a deep desire within us, a deep longing inside our hearts to live under the goodly reign of God himself. So why are we to be concerned about the vulnerable of society? Because God himself is. Look at Psalm 146, starting in verse 7. Who executes justice for the oppressed? 
who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. He watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Christ himself proclaims the fulfillment of God's vision of justice in Luke 4 as he quotes Isaiah 61. Look at the text in verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, that's Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. God's power is exercised throughout all of human history for the well-being of those who are cast down and far off and indeed was embodied by God himself in Christ Jesus. Again, any justice that this king of Israel in the text today exercises must match in focus the righteous justice of God in order for it to be righteous. Justice that is righteous cannot exist outside or apart from God's own character and work. Please hear that. Justice that is righteous cannot exist outside of or apart from God's own character and work. There is no true justice other than God's justice. So while verse 2 and 4 concern the work of the king, the real focus in this part of the text is on the ones for whom the king is to work. Because the ones for whom the king is to work are the ones upon whom God has already set his gaze. The terms poor and needy that we see in the text have a wide range of meanings in Hebrew, including, as we've explored already, those that are economically disadvantaged and spiritually destitute. But, as many biblical scholars note, the poor and the needy throughout the biblical canon are commonly those who are oppressed by others. They are suffering from all kinds of trouble, including unfair court practices, malicious gossip, shaming from the community. The king then is to be concerned with the welfare of the entirety of his citizenry but especially those who are in the margins. And yet the king acting in accordance with God's character 
for justice and for righteousness is not meant to benefit this kingdom alone. Tim Keller writes that when we pour ourselves out for the poor, that gets the world's notice. As the king rules justly for righteousness, not only are the cast down brought up, not only are those who are destitute met with compassion. No, those who are far off, they're brought near. In God's economy, care for the materially destitute is meant to bring the spiritually destitute near. This is crucial. Don't Don't miss this. God's care for those who are cast down and far off is designed to do one thing in the Scriptures. It is designed to bring them close to Him. The hope for a rightly just reign in Solomon imagines a just kingdom that stands in stark contrast to the oppressive and unjust kingdoms that surrounded Israel. That those who are far off from God might find grace in drawing near to Yahweh and be made just in His righteousness. The aim of all of the action of the text in verses 1 to 4 in all of the justice language is that the God of Israel would be known and worshipped. And yet, between verses 2 and 4, we find verse 3, which is not focused on the reign of the king, like the rest of the text is. Look back at the text. Verse 3, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Verse 3 abruptly changes the subject from king to creation. Now it is hoped that the mountains bring well-being or shalom and righteousness to the land. What is the author trying to accomplish by inserting verse 3? Notice the grammar. The action of nature is not dependent on the action of the king. Instead of the good rule of the king causing a good response by nature, The structure of the poem stresses that the king and creation are meant to work in tandem for the good of the world. As in verse 1, the grammatical structure reminds the audience that justice, shalom, and righteousness itself belong to God alone. And because of that, God is free to flow His goodness to us through any ruler or government, or through any other part of creation. Thus, we are never solely dependent on any ruler or government to receive God's grace. No, God is working throughout the entire cosmos by His sovereign might to accomplish His justice to the glory of His name among all nations, that righteousness would reign. This righteous and just work of God in governments and indeed through all of the creation, it does something. 
It doesn't just stand for this kingdom alone. It extends grace and peace. Look back at the text in verse 5. May they fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass. Like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. The hope now turns from the work of the king to the king himself. Long life in the text is associated with God's kingdom. We see that here. We see it in Isaiah 65. This hope, as we've seen so far through the text, extends through the king to his citizens, to the people. The king's good reign is to be like life-giving showers that provide nourishment and refreshment. In verses 5 to 7, see again how the structure of the text places righteousness and peace as entities that are independent of human action. The text here shows us that the king is simply to provide the environment where the benchmarks of God's kingdom can enter in and come and grow and flourish. God's desire in the text is for human flourishing. In hoping for justice and righteousness for the king, we join David in longing for the world to be the way that it was always meant to be. But as we continue on in the text, the impact of this king's rule, we'll see, is meant to extend past the walls of his own kingdom. Look back at the text, starting in verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Verses 8 to 11 extend the grace of the righteous ruler further and further. For the king is meant to have a worldwide impact. Even the rulers at the ends of the earth are to come and acknowledge the grace of God's kingdom and come to Jerusalem with hearts full of adoration. Look at the text. The nations listed are the most remote and exotic known at the time. They encompass both the Mediterranean nations and Africa. In the choice of each nation in the text, the poet takes the reader on a grand geographical sweep that touches all parts of the compass. From sea to sea would be from the Dead Sea to the Mediterranean. The river is the Euphrates. The desert folk would be somewhere to the south and east. Tarshish and the islands are far out to the west in the Mediterranean realm. Sheba and Seba are far to the south in the region of the Red Sea. Indeed, there is not a part of the known world that the rule of the just and righteous king is not meant to impact for good. 
Verse 11 stresses the extent of this adoration that arises. Kings are to fall down before him. All of the nations are to serve him. The final verb here is especially important. For it is always a key word for the people of God. Look at the text in verse 11. The Hebrew abad means both to serve and to worship. It is a key word throughout the Exodus narrative and the original audience would have held that in mind as they listened to the hymn. Here the poet is reminding the people, those gathered from where they came, Israel goes from being slaves of the unjust reign of Pharaoh to being servants and worshipers of God's kingdom. The vision of the poem then is that all the world through Israel and its king will come to be servants in the kingdom of God. Their servitude changes. They go from knowing only injustice to knowing perfect justice. Again, justice and righteousness ruling and reigning in the world accomplishes something. It always extends grace and peace. When God's justice reigns in righteousness, oppression ceases and the beauty of God's grace breaks in. Those who are held captive in subjugation now become servants of His peace. The grace of God draws near those who are far off. It rescues from the margins those who are cast out. It frees those in bondage from tyranny and binds their hearts anew to the love of God in Christ Jesus. So as we reach the end of the first chorus, let's take a moment to think through here and now. How are we meant to respond to the text? In the year 2020, when language surrounding justice is so charged, the first point of application for us today is to simply listen to the text. This year, I don't know about you, but especially this Christmas season, the noise of the world seemed at times overwhelming, overpowering, crowding out the voice of God to us in His world. A bomb going off on Christmas Day in your hometown makes a lot of noise. Many spent part or all of this holiday with family. That can be a lot of noise. If you've been on social media at all this year, you're aware that that's a lot of noise. The pandemic for many of us has created silence. And that itself can be deafening. The first point of application then is for us to take the text and to put it on like noise-canceling headphones. Everyone present in the court of Solomon would have been hanging on every word, listening intently to this prayer by a father for his son. 
So like those present in the court, listen to the coronation hymn, to the prayer of David's court, to the petition of this people for the reign of their new king. And ask yourself, as I listen, as I hear from the text today, what is it saying? What does it mean for me? From verses 1 to 4, I think we see clearly that this means that we should pray ardently for our rulers. This point hit me hard working through the text. I, I don't. We don't pray as we should for our rulers. If we did, our Twitter feeds and Facebook posts would not contain the malice, the hate, the anger, the bitterness that have come to characterize the interactions of Christians this year. You cannot pray for someone and hate them at the same time. It's an impossibility. A.W. Tozer said that to desire revival and at the same time neglect personal prayer and devotion is to wish one way and walk another. Many of us have sincere desire for revival in our country, but have sought to accomplish that through hot takes online, rather than through petition to a holy and sovereign God. I implore you from the text, pray for our nation's current and coming leaders. Pray that God would give our leaders His justice. And that in doing so, God would grant them wisdom and righteousness. That peace would reign. Finally, from verses 5 to 11, we are meant to esteem Christ. Even as we pray this hymn over our leaders today, it is an idealized prayer, a hope-filled petition that cannot and will not be realized by any earthly ruler. We were meant to esteem Christ, the risen Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. His reign is what delights our hearts. Politics makes a poor religion. Justin Gibney writes, when our political affiliation becomes religious in nature, we'll swear we are doing God's work when we're really just serving partisan interests. Our politics and our faith usually don't align as well as we pretend they do. So in this season of turmoil, Have we spent the same amount of time working toward holiness as we have toward winning the next argument, taking down the next opponent, and justifying our own way? The question from the text that should linger in our hearts and minds as we continue on through the second chorus is this. Have we esteemed Christ? Many of the Psalms use repetition of words, or in this case, themes, to introduce and then later deepen the meaning of concepts throughout a song or a poem. This Psalm is no different. 
We saw in the first 11 verses that longing for justice looks like praying longingly for just governments and righteous rulers that the peace of God would be extended to the nations. In verses 12 through the end of the chapter, we see that as we long for justice and righteousness, what we await is a goodly king, Christ, whose blood brings peace that makes the nations glad to the praise of God forever. Look back at the text starting in verse 12. The psalmist writes, For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. The first half of the chapter has painted an idealized picture of a kingdom, a great hope for what a ruler and a government could be. Then verses 12 to 14, we find what actually has to happen concretely for this hope to be realized. We see in the text that the king has hefty responsibilities. Look at the verbs in the text. He is to rescue, have compassion, save, redeem those who are cast down and far off. Indeed, as we look closely at the language of the text, it seems impossible for this action to be done by anyone other than God himself. And this is the point. There is no ruler, no power, no person who could ever perfectly deliver the needy and the poor. Not one that is mighty to quell oppression. No, there is no other that is righteous to redeem other than God himself. And this speaks to us as well. As we struggle to rule and reign our own lives, we are as likely to succeed in that endeavor as I was in my rule as a seven-year-old of a neighborhood kingdom. There is only one ruler mighty to save us, God himself. There is only one that is powerful to break the bondage of sin and death, Christ himself. Only one who is sufficient to comfort us in hopelessness and darkness, the Spirit of God. Indeed, the entirety of the Godhead is working in this moment to bring up those who are cast down, to draw in those who are far off. You and me, we were meant to long for Him. This entire season of Advent is about longing. And it's been hard for me, anyway. Because coming into this Advent, I was tired of longing. Tired of longing for an adoption to be complete. Tired of longing for unity in this body rather than division. Tired of longing for the end of a pandemic. Tired of longing for the end of wearing masks. Tired of longing for many in my life who are far off from God to be be brought near.
Y'all, I'm tired. I think we're tired of longing. And yet we were made to long. We were created for it. Fleming Rutledge writes, the disappointment, brokenness, suffering and pain that characterize life in this present world, all of that is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. And it's in that tension, this Advent tension, that the church lives its life. We are meant to exist in the tension of longing as the church, as the heirs to the kingdom of Christ. So in the midst of all of the brokenness of this world, those who represent God are to herald the reality of the already and not yet kingdom of Christ. We stand as children of this king, heirs to his kingdom, inviting the needy and destitute and oppressed and poor and the cast out and the downtrodden to bring their longing to God and to find in the coming of his kingdom the peace that their hearts were made to know. If you are tired of longing, I invite you, I implore you, bring your longing to Christ because He is the only one who is sufficient to carry it in the in-between as we await Him. Bring your longing to Christ, to the one who is broken into darkness and brought great light. This is for more than just you, for me. As we continue in the text, it's clear that this is for the nations, for those who are far off. Look back with me starting in verse 15. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Verse 17 connects the reign of God to two key concepts. First, the language, may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Is essentially the same construction that we see in Genesis 12. Remember, the text doesn't just look forward. It also looks backward. The king and the audience who are hearing this hymn of coronation are reminded that this has been the plan of God all along. The vision cast before those gathered at this coronation realized the telos of their hopes and longings, that the nations would be made glad in God. This is what it is to represent God on earth. 
Leslie Newbegin writes, the church is the bearer to the nations of a gospel that denounces the kingdom, the reign, and the sovereignty of God. I know that we introduced this text in verses five, this concept in the text earlier in verses 5 to 11. But look back with me. There's another crucial point here in verse 17. A more clunky, but perhaps more accurate translation of verse 17 from the Hebrew might be this. May his name be forever. As long as the sun, may his name bear seed. And may all nations be blessed through him. Call him happy. I call out this point from Robert Alter's translation of the Old Testament because I think it is crucial for understanding what the author is doing here in the text. The last word of Psalm 72 prior to the doxology, which is just the last two verses, this last word is happy. And they call him happy. This same word form, happy, is the first word of Psalm 1. The author is using this concept of happiness as a front and back cover to David's book of the Psalter. This framing is designed to draw you and I into the text because as we scour the pages of these first two books of the Psalter, we find David pouring out his heart in prayer, in lament, in joy, anxiety, and yes, happiness to God. All of the doubt and abandonment in the Psalter met at each turn by the grace and presence of God gives this word happy, deep and abiding meaning. The audience and you and I can learn what it means to be happy from reading these books. And only the poetry of praise and pain can teach our wayward hearts these lessons. And it's these words, this hope of a just and righteous forever kingdom in Christ that is meant to make us glad, make the nations glad. And so the entire psalm has been leading us to this place, praise, to the praise of the one eternal king. In verses 18 and 19. You'll see at the end of verse 19, three words, amen and amen. That's for you all. You're meant to say that. So the leader of this hymn would have sang this hymn, and good for us, I've not sang it today. Um, And you're meant to respond to that with amen and amen. So I'm going to read 18 and 19, and when I get to the end, we'll say together amen and amen. Everybody following with me? Good. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. It's easy to miss the praise. This hymn is historical. We can get bogged down there. It's designed to mark the end of one king and the inception of a new one. But this hymn offers us so much more. 
It gives us a glimpse of the kingdom of God for which we pray, thy kingdom come. This hymn, and indeed this entire book of the Psalter, ends to the praise of the one eternal king. From beginning to end, this psalm transcends the reign of David, of Solomon, of all of the rulers that came after them. And it meets us here today as we await the coming of our eternal king. And it beckons us to worship. So if our lives are lived before God and man to one end, to the praise of the one eternal king, what do we do now? How are we to worship? Three last points of application. First, we are to long for Jesus. Many of us have spent this entire pandemic shutting down our longing. And this goes against everything that we were created to be. We have tried to avoid our longing through Netflix binges and pornography and food and in procrastination and in laziness. You were not designed to not feel. You were meant to feel deeply. The Psalter put this book together that we would bring our deepest emotions, our deepest longings to God. And by trusting Him with all of it, we would be taught to be happy in Him. Today, bring your longings to Jesus and learn in longing for Him to be happy in Him. Next, proclaim His kingdom. This Psalter is not designed to stop with you and me. It's a coronation hymn written for the nations. The entire thrust of the text is that those who are cast down and far off would be brought up and near and made happy in the righteous justice of God in Christ Jesus. In a way today that we can praise the one eternal King is by ceasing praise of ourselves and our own kingdoms. Many of us, by making ourselves ruler, have made the kingdom of God small. Just think about this year. How we've dedicated so much of this year to controversies and ignored the call of the text instead to herald forth the kingdom of God in Christ. Reflect with me for a moment. If someone casts down, if someone far off were to have followed you around this year, and observed how you spent your time. If they were cast down, would they be brought up? If they are far off from God, would they be drawn near? To ask it another way, have we made temporary things permanent, made the lowly ultimate, and confused the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of God in Christ. Y'all, we were never meant to rule. 
from beginning to end, we were meant to know only the goodly reign of God. Y'all, in our longing, it has been easy to make our lives about the reign of our own comfort, to make discussions about the rightness of our own positions, to make the future about the fortune of our candidate, to mold morality to our own likeness, to herald the greatness of our own name. We have sacrificed our own personal holiness, our proclamation of the gospel, the unity of our church, and the urgency of our mission on the altars of our own pride. How many of us have neglected prayer, the word, evangelism, and mercy for a little more time reading the latest thing online? that disagrees with something that we already disagree with or agrees with something that we already agree with. We have, and when I, when I say we, please hear me, I am first saying me. I have made the kingdom of God small this year. And writing this sermon was as much about repentance as it was anything else. So I invite you into my struggle through this text. Please don't leave this question alone. Whose kingdom have you proclaimed this year? And I want you to hear what the eternal king of glory spoke back into my rebellious longing. Ephesians 2, 4-7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And this brings us to the last point of the text. We were meant to exalt Jesus. You know what will bring to light your sin really quickly? Just exalting God. Just sitting before Him and recounting His greatness will bring to light quickly just how sinful and small you are. And yet you know what will bring your weary and sinful heart hope, help, and happiness? Seeing the love and care that this great, eternal, sovereign God has for the small and sinful, for you and for me. The hope for those who are cast down and far off today is the Christ of Ephesians 2, who brings the dead to life, who raises up the destitute, who calls them sons and daughters, heirs to the kingdom, seating them in the heavenly places with him, that others who are cast down and far off might be brought up and brought near and come to know the love of God for us in Christ Jesus by his kingdom come. The one who rules 
and reigns from Psalm 72 to Ephesians 2 is Christ the risen King. This Christmas, I've been worshiping to Maverick City Music's Christmas album. If you haven't listened to it, uh, you know what? It's after Christmas, but it's still Christmas tide, so get your Christmas on. And at the end of their version of O Come Let Us Adore Him, they sing over and over again these words. You're worthy of it all. You're worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. He is worthy, and he deserves the glory. And as I sat and listened to these words with the text open before me, I could do nothing else but exalt Christ, repent of my own sin, and in that moment, just bring to him a whole truckload of my longing. And God was faithful. He met me with the sureness and the truth of his promises, which are unfailing to you and me in Jesus. He met my longing, my sinfulness, with love, with peace, and with great hope. As we exalt God from Psalm 72, let us be filled with hope because God's kingdom is sure. It is never ending. So this first Advent that we celebrate brings with it both longing for and hope in the second Advent when our just and righteous King will return to rule eternal to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, in this Advent of expectation, Draw us together in unity. That our praise and worship might echo in these walls and also through our lives. In this advent of expectation, draw us together in mission. That the hope within might be the song we sing and the melody of our lives. In this advent of expectation, God, draw us together in hope that the path we follow might lead us from a stable into the courts of your eternal kingdom forevermore. Amen.